Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the MENA region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and I'll be talking about Tunisia today. Long hailed as the poster child of the Arab Spring uprisings, Tunisia is rapidly descending into a racist dictatorship as the country's autocratic president, Kay Saeed, trains his ire on African migrants. Ghana and the Ivory Coast announced they would be repatriating their citizens from the North African nation where they face mounting physical attacks. Said said last week that migration was a plot to change the demographic makeup of the country of 12 million. Many Africans lost their jobs overnight and dozens have since been detained. Said's comments come against the backdrop of a series of moves that have all but extinguished Tunisia's fledgling democracy and concentrated power in the erratic president's hands. With us here to discuss these alarming developments is Monica Marx, among the foremost scholars on Tunisia, who teaches at New York University, Abu Dhabi. Monica is currently in Tunis, from where she joins us today. Welcome back on our program, Monica. It's so great to have you. Great to be back. So we last spoke almost two years ago when Kai Saeed made that dramatic move of uh, freezing the parliament, dismissing the government. And at the time, you know, you were among the first to really call it, to say that this really looked like a coup. And uh, you've been pretty much justified in that prediction. So can you just briefly give us the rundown of what's happened since and uh you know what why does this matter and why should the world be paying attention yeah thanks Andrin. um and thanks for your interest in what's happening in tunisia it's it's deeply concerning and it just seems to get worse every single day um on july 25th 2021 kaya syed who was democratically elected in 2019 as a black horse candidate um, ironically, he's a constitutional law professor by training. He shut the democratically elected parliament with army tanks and seized the reins of all three branches of power. Um, and since then, he's been on a, a march towards repression. What he did at the time perplexed a lot of Tunisians and a lot of outside observers. Many people, especially on the left, pinned quite romantic hopes on Syed. Um, painting him as an anti-corruption reformer who might finally um, wrest control of, of difficult problems like security sector reform and economic inequalities and, and deliver in a way that Tunisia's fractious um, post-revolutionary governments hadn't managed to do. But that hasn't been the case. Um, and comparative political scientists who specialize in the study of democratization and democratic breakdown weren't so confused by what Syed did on July 25th, 2021. Um, we actually have a word for what he did. It's called a self-coup or an autogolpe in the Latin American context. This is something done by uh, many, even dozens, of democratically elected leaders who in recent decades have been assaulting democracy, not through classic military coups that we saw in the 1950s and 60s, but from the inside, 
using the, the mechanics of uh, democratic um, governance and using loopholes and constitutions to become, in essence, dictators. Um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey is a classic example of this in the MENA region, but Erdogan moved much more slowly than Kaya's Syed, much less dramatically than Syed. Um, so what Kaya Syed did, I would argue, on July 25th, 2021, was really a bog standard example of, of a self-coup and of um, a, a certain brand of populist-flavored democratic breakdown that has unfortunately become much more common in governments around the world, from, um, from the Philippines to Venezuela to Turkey. Um, to get back to your question, what has he been doing since? Well, he has systematically obliterated the fabric of Tunisian democracy that multiple elected governments worked quite hard to build. Um, over, over Tunisia's decade of, of demo, demo, democratization. Tunisia had a decade of freedom in which a uh, free and fair democratically representative constitution was created, um, in which media freedom uh, existed very vibrantly. It was flawed, it was fragile. There were a lot of um, key building blocks that hadn't been delivered. For example, a Supreme Court was never created in Tunisia, which left one of the three branches of government, the judicial branch, um, weak and unconsolidated. And that meant that Tunisia's decades of inheritance of anti-democratic legislation, prohibiting, for example, legitimate expressions of free speech and, and criticism, like, for example, laws and decrees saying that you can't insult the president, a kind of less majest law, um, laws saying that you can't insult public officials. You know, a lot of these laws dated from the French colonial period or from the autocratic dictatorships of, of Tunisia's pre-revolutionary presidents, Bourguiba and Ben Ali. They desperately needed to be reformed, to be harmonized with the 2014 democratic constitution. They weren't because there was never a Supreme Court created to do that. That was a signal failing of Tunisia's um, governments, especially between 2015 and, and the coup. There were also ongoing problems with security sector reform, economic inequalities and corruption. But nevertheless, Tunisia was the first and only country in the Arab world that built what scholars of democratization and the major democracy rating indices like Freedom House and Polity 4 qualified as a truly free country, as a democracy, despite its flaws. Today, um, we've seen Kaya Syed embark on a dramatic escalation of his dictatorial consolidation. He has entered the hard repression stage of that consolidation. On February 11th, he started um, abducting multiple leaders of different political parties across the ideological spectrum from their homes, often without clear charges, accusations, or warrants. He's been dragging these people along with the head of Tunisia's largest, most important independent media outlet, Mosaic FM, and along with the head of Tunisia's um, media union, the SNJT, in front of anti-terror units. He's been charging people like this with a grand conspiracy against the state. He released a list of 17 different names, including, absurdly, the French Jewish public intellectual Bernard-Henri Levy, 
um, and members of the so-called Islamist party in Tunisia and secular leftists, you know, people who would just never be in a room together. It would be comically absurd if it wasn't so tragic. He released a list of these 17 names, charging them all with a high conspiracy against the state. And on February 21st, he gave a speech in which he claimed that Tunisia's post-2011 pro-democracy political parties were engineering a demographic great replacement, where they were conspiratorially um, Im importing um, Black African immigrants to Tunisia to, Syed said, assault the country's Arab and Islamic character. This was essentially a great replacement speech. Um, and it's not surprising. Um, Kaya Said has a track record of using fascistic and genocidal language against his political opponents, calling them um, in generalized terms, uh, lumping them all together as, quote, hyenas, insects, viruses, cancers that he said as recently as February 2nd last month need to be eliminated using, quote, chemical methods. So it's not surprising that he is weaving a um, significant racist component into this toxic dictatorial mixture. Um, the people who are paying for this are um, not only political leaders uh, and media leaders and judges and lawyers across the political and ideological spectrums, they're also the very most vulnerable people in this country, including Black immigrants and Black refugees. Just last night, I met with three Sudanese refugees. These are UNHCR certified refugees in Tunisia, one of whom was stabbed um, by a, a, a Tunisian on account simply of being black um, last month. These people were so terrified when they saw Saeed's great replacement speech a couple weeks ago that they have not left their homes since. They said, we only feel safe to go out because you're with us and I have white skin. I've never in my life been in a country where I've seen people hiding behind curtains and double locked doors, afraid to even go to the mosque to pray if they're Muslim, afraid to even go buy groceries simply for their skin color. Well, What's happening is horrific. Here, Monica, yeah, and, please uh, do, please. Yeah. Um, do, do you feel safe? I mean, here you are saying all these things about the president of the country and describing how journalists are getting locked up. Um, what about you? <laughs> Um, I think of, of anyone um, in this context, I am very privileged. Um, unlike the Black immigrants being, being persecuted in racist manhunts and pogroms today, I have white skin. I have an American passport, unlike so many Tunisians here who are analysts and journalists and scholars. Um, but I think um, given Kaya Syed's propensity for conspiracy theories and pinning the blame on foreign agents and, and trying to say that there are, you know, dark, these dark conspiracies constantly attacking the state and trying to engineer great replacements and, and attacking, uh, you know, consumer goods shortages, it's just wild and, and really absurd. Given all of this, I, I would not be surprised if um, independent scholars, academics, journalists with any passport, be it, be it French or American or British or German, with any passport might see themselves barred from entering the country or deported. 
um, or, or potentially worse. I mean, we're really in a context with a lot of question marks. Kaya Syed is not one of Tunisia's pre-2011 dictators. He's not just a, a revivified Bourguiba or Ben Ali. He is extremely erratic. He is um, it, he seems ideologically hell-bent on portraying his critics um, in diabolized, dehumanized terms. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he gets bloody. Tunisia is in the most concerning situation I've seen it. I've been traveling here since 2007. I've been writing on the country's politics as a scholar since 2011. I've never been this concerned. So why, why should the rest of the world care about that? I mean, they don't seem to be very much just judging by the very limp reactions we've gotten so far out of the European Union and the United States. That's right. Um, the international silence, including from Western democracies, is absolutely deafening. And in fact, at a lot of moments, I wish there would be <laughs> more silence, or I think that silence would be a better alternative to what there often is, which is cheerleading or, or, or tacit enabling that, that can be interpreted here as applause. You know, just to give you a couple examples of that, last April in 2022, just a few days after Tunisia's democratically elected parliament, the one that Syed had shut with army tanks in 2021, decided to hold its first virtual meeting because they couldn't meet in the parliament, of course, it was shut, to vote measures to condemn Syed's coup. Just a few days after that happened, these democratically elected MPs were being dragged in front of anti-terror units charged with terrorism and conspiracy simply because they criticized Syed's um, moves as a coup. The American ambassador at the time, Donald Blome, allowed himself to literally be garlanded. He allowed uh, an award to be draped around his ne neck by Caius Syed, and it was widely photographed. Um, this has been part of a pattern with the Biden administration, with the U.S. State Departments. Um, we've seen in both rounds of Syed's sham elections for a Potemkin parliament um, to replace the Democratic one that he shut with army tanks in December 2022 and in January 2023. We saw after both of those uh, you know, rounds of the sham election, we saw the U.S. State Department calling those elections, quote, um, an essential step towards restoring democracy in Tunisia. Those statements are absurd, and they're an insult to Tunisians across the political and ideological spectrum. So, you know, in moments like that, as a scholar, you, you know, and for me personally, as an American taxpayer, I really do think that we'd be better off saying nothing. Um, why does Tunisia matter? Tunisia... Tunisia was the first and only organic, actual Arab democracy. That is incredibly important. Tunisia might be a small country. It's not rich in any natural resource, but its symbolic importance punched so far above its weight because in a region where repressive autocrats and jihadists have found um, a lot of ground to, to control people's ideas of what is politically possible and where the ideological alternatives might lie. Having an example of a country with actual free media, of a country where young people might be able to get the idea to run for office and do it and criticize power and not be put in prison for that, 
a country with dignity, a country with representative government and genuine pluralism in the MENA region, it was unheard of. And having Tunisia there mattered. It inspired a lot of people and it provided, provided a very powerful answer to a lot of jihadists who have argued for decades that the only alternative to repressive authoritarianism is um, violent extremist Islamism. Tunisia was something different. Um, I would also argue that it matters because Kaius Syed is not building a garden variety dictatorship in Tunisia. Like I said, he's not merely a resurrection of Bourguiba or Ben Ali. He's very anti-Western in many of his um, modalities and discourses. He's extremely destabilizing and erratic. So I think there's a real risk that Western countries, including the European Union and the United States, which have tacitly enabled or outright rhetorically and practically supported his dictatorial consolidation, are running the risk of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy here um, in terms of propping up um, an extremist and erratic dictator who might turn on them. He already has, in fact. Some of the people who were rounded up in this month's sweeping political witch hunts, you know, that's a quote from Amnesty International, they termed it, sorry, from Human Rights Watch, they termed uh, these roundups witch hunts. Some of these people are being um, rounded up and, and accused and suspected in part because they've simply had meetings with people from the political cone in the U.S. Embassy here in Tunis. Um, so the indicators look very grim. And I would go so far as to say that the collapse of Tunisia's young democracy, as flawed and fragile as it was, that the collapse of that um, beautiful and unique experiment represents one of the greatest tragedies of this young century. Well, it certainly does. I agree with you and fail to grasp why then the US and the European Union are sort of burying their heads in the sand. What's the strategic argument if there exists one for that? Or is it just, you know, they have other bigger problems like Ukraine, China? I think there's been a lot of analytical laziness in part because there is so much focus on Ukraine right now and in large part because old Cold War logics have come to dominate geostrategic thinking again. In other words, fear of Russia and China um, operating abroad or becoming friends with new dictators if we don't befriend them first. We're seeing those logics um, dominate a lot of analysis and decision making. I've tried to plumb that exact question in meetings I've had with various Western embassies here in Tunis um, and with various Western governments in Western capitals like DC, London, Paris. Um, the farthest I've been able to get in terms of um, excavating a, a real geostrategic rationale looks like this. For the European Union countries, especially the southern ones like Italy and France, their main concern really is migrants. They don't want to see boat people coming over the Mediterranean Sea, and they'll do almost anything to prevent it. This is not a surprising uh, dynamic for scholars of North African politics. In fact, concern about migration and terrorism have been the... Um, the, the dominant features of European Union policy making towards North Africa for decades, um, often in, encouraging um, or abetting 
relationships, quite cozy relationships between governments like France and Italy and, um, and, and dictators in North Africa. Um, for the United States, though, there's something different going on. For the United States, their, their geostrategic concern about Tunisia has to do primarily with Russia and China. They're afraid that if uh, the State Department is afraid that if the United States reduces funding for Kaius Syed or isolates, alienates him, China and Russia might then seize on Tunisia to gain a strategic foothold in the Mediterranean. Um, for example, by making a bid on the port of Rades within the next 10 years. Um, when I really try to dig into that, though, and, and game out the likelihood of it happening, it seems to me that instead of being a real and present danger, that's more of a pretext for excusing policy inertias that are already in play. So for example, there's been quite a lot of American investment in Tunisia's military and counterterrorism operations over the past 10 years, um, some of which was very understandable given uh, Tunisia's struggle fighting jihadism, especially between 2013 and 2015. But America's security sector funding is not being reviewed despite the fact that Syed is dragging many pro-democracy activists, including people who have been in close conversation with the US and other Western embassies over the past decade in front of military courts and anti-terror units. Um, you know, I think there's there was also um, a, a negative uh, kind of vicious feedback loop, a negative dynamic put in play when the coup happened on July 25th, 2021, because a lot of analysts working at different embassies bought into the argument that this is what the Tunisian people want. Um, there were a lot of Tunisians, certainly not all, but a lot of Tunisians who were cheerleading Syed's autogolpe when it happened. Um, and many of the Tunisians who are closest to Western embassies and Western-funded civil society organizations were some of the most ardent supporters of that self-coup. Why? Because many of them were critics of the so-called Islamist party in Tunisia, Anatha, and were, were excited um, by the, the thought of its political isolation. Um, there were other reasons too, but that was a really important one. So a lot of the Tunisians that Americans and other Westerners have been in conversation with since the coup um, have, have tended to be um, more in favor of some of Syed's measures. Now that favor, that sense of excitement has worn off considerably in the past year. But I think the July 25th, 2021, and the, and the two or three months after it, represented a critical juncture in terms of determining the path of Western policy towards Syed's coup. How worked up were they going to get about it? How threatening or toxic did they think it might become? And during that critical juncture, I think there was a lot of passive, um, quite lazy and facile analysis that was that was frankly misinformed, that didn't take seriously enough um, the institutions that Said was obliterating and the genocidal language, language that he was using. So what of the Tunisian people? You mentioned that these embassies, these governments were pointing to them, saying, you know, that, that they support this guy. Do they still support this guy? 
Are you talking about the t Tunisian people or Western government? The, the, the Tunisian people. I mean, they're the ones who did the revolution, who overthrew the Ben Ali regime. Um, how do they feel about this new dictator? Mm. I think the dominant feeling on the streets of Tunisia, not just in the capital, but all over the country, as I've been traveling and various visits, interviewing over 200 people since the coup, has been exhaustion, increasing exhaustion, and cynicism, and hopelessness. There's a huge crisis of hopelessness now. There was a brief moment of enthusiasm for Kaya's side, but that's, that really wore off quite quickly. I would say as, as recently as December 2021 and January 2022, you stopped hearing the kind of evangelical enthusiasm for Syed that you got from a lot of his supporters um, when he made his self-coup. Um, but by the same token, most Tunisians don't believe that there's any clear alternative. They see a lot of old men, frankly, across the various political parties. They don't see many fresh young faces, which I think reflects a failure of parties across the ideological spectrum to bring in new blood, um, create vibrant in internal democracy within their parties and really create visions that could mobilize Tunisians um, beyond uh, the scope of their egos and desire to hold on to their own seats. Um, so Tunisians aren't seeing many fresh, inspiring faces, and the political opposition and uh, anti-side critics across civil society organizations, too, they haven't been able to unite and, and come together very effectively. Um, now, obviously, in any context, you don't expect all um, opponents to unite, but you would hope that they could unite around the minimum demand that uh, Syed step down and that you know Tunisia returned to the 2014 constitution, for example, but they haven't even been able to unite around those demands. And one so of the I think reasons a lot of Tunisians is the Ennahda <laughs> factor, right? You often use that term, the Ennahda uh, factor. Yeah, um, there, there's a, an old friend of mine here in Tunisia named Hamel Hamami, who is a uh, a leftist Marxist who was actually imprisoned and tortured under Tunisia's pre-revolutionary regimes for his leftist activism. And he was actually in a prison cell in the Ministry of Interior when the revolution broke out in January 2011. Very interesting person. He He's dubbed this phenomenon Anatha Syndrome. Oh, wait, and yeah, he says, syndrome, you know, sorry, yeah. Yeah, Anatha Syndrome. And he says, you know, we on the left in Tunisia have historically had uh, a problem of diagnosing Anatha as the main threat to freedoms and progress in Tunisia, when in fact Anatha should be, um, you know, a legal normalized political rival. We might disagree with it. We might in fact hate it. We might think it's too religiously conservative or we might dislike its uh, policies and visions for the country. But in a democratic polity, you need to be able to accept your rivals and not dehumanize them as insects and, and not try to throw them into the torture chambers, which seems like a pretty basic requirement. But as uh, widespread support for the coup on the on the left in Tunisia indicated, um, it's it's not um, that's not a, a vision around which uh, a critical mass of, of Tunisia's secular left has bought in yet. 
And this has benefited dictators time and time again in Tunisia. The Anatta syndrome has been uh, a deliciously useful wedge for Tunisia's autocrats because it divides and, and helps them rule the opposition. Um, it would be lovely to see Tunisia moving beyond that. I think a lot of scholars and analysts thought it finally had when the Carthage Pact happened in 2015-2016 between Bejikaida Sebsi, the late president who was a kind of arch, uh, secularist, arch anti-Islamist, and the, the president of Tunisia's so-called Islamist party, Anatha. It was a weird wedding, but when it happened, it really seemed like it took the edge off. That political alliance took the edge off this old Islamist secularist divide, took the edge off Anatha syndrome. But failure to make democracy deliver in a number of practical ways, like the economy and the, the kind of natural crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic difficulties caused by the lockdowns, et cetera, I think all of that mixed into a combustible um, cauldron that really helped Syed justify his takeover. And this is another common pattern in populist democratic breakdowns where there will be a disaster of some sort, you know, some Reichstag fire-esque event <laughs> that the dictator seizes upon um, to say, we're in a moment of crisis, we need to establish a state of emergency and I need to go after public enemy number one often the opposition. And that's exactly what Syed did with the COVID-19 pandemic, which was at its height when he made his self-coup. But so who's, in whose name is he doing these things? I mean, he almost sounds like he's unhinged. And, you know, we talk about the Anatta syndrome and we know that it, you know, the aversion to Anatta is very strongly felt by um Kai's side, yet we now see him train his guns on the likes of the UGTT, which perhaps mm. shares some of his, you know, uh, distrust of Anatta. So, I mean, what is going on exactly? What is his end game and who are his enablers? Well, um, Syed's closest ideological allies, some of whom I've managed to interview um, are people who are not affiliated to any Tunisian political party or civil society movement. They really come out of left field. Um, there's a guy, for example, called Rida Lenina, who says that, uh, who was very close to Syed in about 2012, 2013. And, and his vision, which was a vision that Syed shared, was one of um, almost like Rousseauian noble savage type of um, anti-system, anti-establishment populism. He talked, when I interviewed Rida Lenina, Lenina is a nickname, but when I interviewed him, um, he talked about the five-star movement in Italy and uh, Occupy Wall Street. And he said, listen, it's very clear. And it was clear to us in 2012, to me and Syed, that people across the world had turned on um, democratically elected governments. And it was clear that they needed an alternative. And we're going to, to basically create a country with no political parties and no intervening institutions, intermediating institutions like media or civil society, because we're gonna unleash um, the pure individual. Um, 
it almost sounded Gaddafi-esque for, for those who studied neighboring Libya during the 1970s and 80s and, and Gaddafi's idea of this kind of direct democracy, Jamahriya, that was going to be the best thing for democracy since, since ancient Athens and sliced bread, but which ended up becoming a highly, highly centralized and brutal form of dictatorship. You heard a lot of echoes of that um, in what people close to Syed have said. Today, Syed seems to increasingly be taking a lot of his cues from a fascist organization in Tunisia called the Tunisian Nationalist Party, which almost no one understands. I don't know any journalists who've interviewed them. I'm currently working on trying to interview them. This is another very small, eclectic, um, quite, quite vicious group that comes out of left field. Um, but these are the ideational um, stews in which uh, Syed swims. They're very concerning. Um, they're very conspiratorial. Um, and they rely on a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature, which is this idea that if you don't have any in intervening institutions or, quote, elites, you, if you don't have media, if you don't have parties, you're going to get um, a very stable, vibrant democracy. So you mentioned a specter of bloodshed looming over Tunisia at, at this time. So who who would be, you know, who would be pitted against who in that very awful scenario that we hope won't come to pass? It's hard to predict. Um, like the old William Butler Yeats poem, The Second Coming, Tunisia seems to be spinning and spinning in an ever-widening gyre in which the falcon can no longer hear the falconer. It's very concerning. Um, people are often so angry. You'll hear so much vengefulness, so much diabolization, picking up on Syed's demonizing rhetorics. You'll hear this on the streets. Um, there's a lot of mistrust, um, not just between citizens and government, but, but between and amongst citizens themselves. It's very hard to predict where it's going to go. I think um, the past a uh, few days and the, the racist pogroms we've seen against black people here in Tunisia, including against black Tunisian passport holders themselves, some of whom have been arrest and, arrested and aggressed, gives us um, a very frightening indication of where this could go. Um, we know that um, Tunisia has a deeply entrenched history of, of torture against pro-democracy dissidents and political critics of presidents. Um, I think we're just baby steps away from Tunisia sliding back into the dark days of Ben Aziz's 1990s, where torture was widely used against opponents, or of Sisi's Egypt in 2013. Um, I, I hope uh, more than anything to be wrong, but all of the building blocks are in place and all of the warning signs are there. And without a critical mass of organized domestic opposition or um, outside governments trying to draw clear lines um, about political persecution and violence that cannot be crossed. Um, the, the prospects look very grim. One final question. What of this uh, IMF loan, which would obviously, you know, enable Kais side in all of this? Is that going to happen? Is, it, is he going to get that money? 
Well, I think there's a lot of pressure to make that happen coming from Western governments, including the United States and European Union governments, because they believe, I would argue this is quite short-sighted and, and mistaken, but they believe that Kaya Syed is their best bet for short-term stability. He might not be the ally they want, but they think if he goes, if Tunisia spirals into complete and utter economic collapse, if it becomes a Lebanon-style scenario, which it almost certainly will, um, if it doesn't get propped up by external bailouts, they believe that there's going to be even more migrants coming to Europe. They believe that there could be uh, a breakdown in public order um, that could um, have threatening effects, uh, especially for the European Union. So I, I know that there are multiple Western governments who've actually been coming with a tin cup to Gulf powers like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which surprisingly have not come forward yet for a bail with a bailout for Syed, begging these governments to do so. Um, but those governments are not convinced yet that he will be a useful ally rather than an agent of chaos. So they want, at the very least, to see the comfort or the reassurance of an IMF deal before they invest in this sinking ship. Um, but it's so. It, do it, I think it's, it's going to happen? Of, yes, I do. Yeah. Counterintuitive, because you know what you just explained was, a, you know, a scenario where everything they fear will actually happen under his watch, where you have conflict, bloodshed, economic collapse, and people inevitably wanting to leave the country. So, well, you know, I think the reasoning a... seems deeply flawed to me. Well, you know, there's, I think it's quite human. Um, you know, a human logical fallacy is to assume that whatever difficulties are right in front of you now, as bad as it is right now, it might not be as bad as what's to come. Um, and there's a lot of fear of the unknown. And as destabilizing as Syed is, there are a lot of governments willing to think that he might not be as destabilizing as whatever could come next. Amberin, I've got to, I've got to run because I'm hosting okay, a Zoom call. Okay, okay, Monica. Like right now, but I, we can talk much. more later. Thank you so All much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. And this brings us to the end of this week's episode of On the Middle East. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Monica and will tune in again. Thank you and goodbye.